Well, today we are continuing our sermon series on the New Testament letter to Romans. And last week, things seemed a tad more upbeat. Uh, we talked about the gospel. And now the gospel is the good news of salvation that Jesus saves sinners. That the message of the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. But the reason the good news is so good is because it is given in the context of very bad news. And that's what our sermon is about today. The bad news. That how bad are things without the good news? How much danger are we in? What hope do we have to get ourselves out of this danger? And to answer that question, we are looking at a lot of verses today. I warned you about that last week. Last week we only had two verses. There may be 64 this week. Um, And so as we read this large portion of Scripture, I would like to remind you that Romans is a letter. Romans was meant to be read all at one time in a setting very similar to this. But you would obviously then go back through and look at parts more closely. And that's what we are going to do is that today we are looking at a large chunk, and then over the next few months, we're going to go back and look at each chunk. Maybe to help you think about that, imagine you're at a church picnic. See? Imagine there's a big buffet of food. A helpful strategy, just some advice for you today, is to examine the entire buffet line and then go back with your plate and pick out what you want. That's kind of what we are doing. We are doing the initial buffet survey today so that over the next few months, we will then dive into each dish and chew on it and to examine each portion. And so with that in mind, we are turning today to Romans 1, starting in verse 18. Romans is a letter in the New Testament. It comes right after the book of Acts. It is before the two letters to the Corinthians. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 20. I'd encourage you, this is a longer portion of Scripture. You may want to follow along in your bulletin or Bible. Let us hear the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, 
for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who speaks. Lord, today may it not feel like a fire hose is hitting us in the face. May it instead feel like You have zoomed us out and taken us high above to be able to see the forest and not just the trees. To be able to see the bigger and broader picture of the nature of sin, our greatest problem in life. Lord, use me in spite of my own sin to faithfully proclaim Your Word. And would You work through Your Spirit and through me, O God, to have Your Word go forth and accomplish Your purposes. Give us ears to hear and open hearts and minds. And Lord, work in us, especially today, to convict us of our own sinfulness that we might look more and more to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the big question for what we're looking at today, the big reason we are keeping all of this stuff together is we're trying to ask the question, if the gospel is good news for salvation, then what is the bad news about what we need to be saved from? So the gospel's good news, but that must mean there's some kind of bad news. What do we need to be saved from? And so what we're going to see is obviously the answer is sin. But there are two categories of sin that Paul addresses here. Category one is in chapter one. Category two is in chapter two. Super helpful. Okay. And then ultimately he shows us the condition of sin and how it's our problem, not God's problem. All right. So first, the first category of sin is that sin can be very obvious. In the second half of chapter one, Paul primarily deals with the obvious sins that were usually committed by Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people. And their sins were so obvious because they denied the existence of God, at least the God of the Bible. They may have believed in other pagan gods, but they did not acknowledge the holy God who had revealed himself to the Jewish people. Now, some might say, wait, we're talking about people that had never heard about God and that God's going to send his wrath on them for their sin. But how would they have known about him? How can you deny a God you've never known about? Isn't this sinning in ignorance? Isn't God unjust to say, I am sending my wrath against the sin of these people who didn't know me? Those are all really fair questions. In fact, they're questions that Paul's like, I know you're going to ask it, so I'm just going to go ahead and answer it right away. And he does in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, so they are without excuse. Paul is saying that there is a sense in which all people know there's a God. That you just look at the world around you and the proper order of the world suggests this came from someone. Not just somewhere, someone. That we are not some accidental product of collisions of space particles. That there are intricate patterns of life like the changing seasons the steady flow of time, the circle of life, 
the food chain, male and female and procreation and being fruitful. We see the beauty and wisdom of God's creation. It's there. It's the evidence of his existence. The evidence of his power is seen in the beautiful mountain ranges and the storms and tornadoes and the stars in the sky. We see the creator through the creation. But Paul says that people suppress that truth. That instead of looking beyond creation, they've made idols out of created things. Like the sun, the rain, the earth, the sea. If you've ever studied ancient religions and pagan cultures, they make gods of all of these natural forces that they would try to worship to get the blessing instead of the pain of those things. Today, we're a little more sophisticated when it comes to our idolatry, but we do a lot of the same things. We worship the earth through extreme environmentalism. We can worship money by greedily chasing profits. We can worship power by seeking out positions of power in government or through companies. That we have these kinds of idols that we worship and chase. And so what does God do to those who deny his existence? Well, three different times in chapter one, Paul says that God gave them up. He gives them over to these sinful pursuits. That one way that God reveals his wrath against sin is by letting people continue in their sin to their own harm and shame. The idea being that if you don't want to be saved, I won't save you. And if you so desperately want to live as if there is no God, let's just indulge that then. I will oblige your request and pretend like I don't exist to you. So what is the result of God giving them over? What is the result of God's abandonment? Well, Paul gives a number of results. He gives one that he spends a little more time on, and then he gives a laundry list as well. The specific example he gives is homosexuality. It is certainly a hot-button issue in our culture, but in the text, you can very clearly read that Paul calls it dishonorable and unnatural. In a few weeks, we will touch on those verses in more detail, but Paul is clear that homosexuality is sinful. But he is also clear, as he follows it up, that it's not the only kind of sin. It's not the only thing he gives people over to. Verses 28 through 32 is just a scattershot of all manner of sins that you can't not find yourself in that list somewhere. It's like Paul even thought of children midway through disobedient to parents. Like he's like, I'm I'm hitting everybody on this list. Everyone's got these sins. And he says people know these actions are wrong. And yet they still shamelessly practice them and approve of others who do the same thing. It's a bad news situation. They think they are wise when they're truly being foolish and leading themselves away from God. And it was these kinds of obvious sins that many of the Roman Christians had been saved from. That these Gentile believers had lived in this way. That many of their family and friends likely still lived in this way. And God could have given all of these people over to their sinful desires and consequences. But because there were Gentile Christians in the Roman church, we know God saved some. 
See, the good news of Jesus is He saves people out of sin. Even the obvious kinds of sin that blatantly and flagrantly deny God and try to go as far away as they can, God's like, yeah, I can save them too. The good news of Jesus is good news for them too. The good news can save people in that kind of bad news. So he gives that first category of sin, that obvious sin. But in chapter 2, we see Paul's got this like sneak attack coming. Because many people in the Roman church, as he's reading through chapter 1, would have been like, Amen! You tell him, Paul, all them bad sinners doing all that sinful stuff. You're right. And then Paul just like drops the hammer on him in chapter 2. He starts talking about a category of sin that is sneaky. A category of sin that is often seen in good people, religious people. And so if chapter 1 describes typically Gentile sins, chapter 2 describes typically Jewish sins. Or today you might say immoral and moral. People who aren't trying to be good and people who think they're really good. But he says, even if they're not as obvious... They're still wicked, and God's judgment is still coming. And because those sins are sneakier, Paul has to be a little louder to shake people out of their self-confidence. His tone is similar to how Jesus spoke to the religious leaders and the Pharisees of his day. These people think they're good, and Paul's got to convince them they are not. And so, he tries to get it where their self-confidence comes from. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, he says, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Notice that's not like, I'm going to stand up in it, but somehow you're going to like just not be there? Like somehow get out of town before judgment comes? Are you getting out somehow? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness? Do you presume that God's like, Oh, you're just so good, I can't judge you. There's no way I can judge you. You're just too great. We see this misplaced self-confidence comes from the belief that God will somehow be easy on His people. That God will not judge people as harshly if they seem better. And Paul's like, that's, I'm sorry, that's not what's going to happen. Paul makes it clear that even those sneaky sins will be judged by him. We see that in verses 12 through 24 where Paul gives this convicting lesson on practicing what you preach. You see, all people have a conscience. And that conscience gives us some moral direction. But some people, in addition to their conscience, have been blessed with some knowledge of God's Word. They have something clear to inform their conscience, to give it even better guidance. But having that extra wisdom does not necessarily mean we will obey God more faithfully. Paul says that plenty of Jews and other religious people do the very things they know are wrong, while some people we think of as bad people actually carefully follow their conscience. They may not follow God's laws, but they have their own innate sense of right and wrong, and they're at least trying to follow what they know is right. But can we always say that? See, knowing what is right does not necessarily mean you are right. And what he's trying to show them here is there is a difference 
between presuming God's kindness and trusting God's kindness. A difference between presuming and trusting. And Paul helps us see that by giving an example in verses 25 through 29. The example is circumcision. That circumcision was the physical sign of belonging to God's chosen people. That if you were born to a Jewish family, if a, a son was born, that son would be circumcised. That if you converted to Judaism and you were male, you were circumcised. It was a physical, external mark that you belonged to God's people. But Paul warns Jews and religious people to not presume that these external signs keep you safe from God's judgment. For us today, we don't do circumcision as the sign of the new covenant. So what you can do is take verses 25 through 29 and just sub out circumcision. It'll make you feel better anyway. All right? And you put in baptism. You put in church attendance. You put in avoiding bad sins. That if we presume that because we have these external marks, God won't judge me, we are in danger of deceiving ourselves. See, the bad news of sin is not just bad news for bad people, it's bad news for religious people. Because we cannot be religious enough. We cannot be obedient enough. There are not enough rituals and external marks to keep you safe from God's judgment. Thankfully, the good news of Jesus is that He can save people like that. The Apostle Paul, elsewhere in the Bible, writes about he was essentially the king of the external marks. The king of doing all the stuff you're supposed to do. And you know what? Jesus came to him and Paul recognized, I'm a sinner. I can only be saved by Jesus. That's what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness must exceed that of the most righteous person you know in order to be saved. And the good news of the gospel is that that righteousness is available through faith in Jesus Christ for both those bad people and also those good people because we all need it. And so he's gone through these two categories of sin, the obvious and the sneaky. And then he starts anticipating some questions. So, yeah, what about buts in chapter 3? First one, well, isn't sin God's fault? Like, he's in charge. If he chose the Jewish people and gave them all these blessings and they're still as lost as the Gentiles, then what benefit did they actually get? Well, Paul assures them, no, there's great benefit in being around the people of God. There's great benefit in reading His Word. There's great benefit in being baptized. But none of that guarantees a right standing with God. Well, okay. But then isn't God doing a really bad job of leading His people if they're so rebellious? Isn't He kind of like a teacher that just can't teach the kids a lesson? And if none of the kids understand the lesson, then it's the teacher's fault. No, pretty sure it's not this teacher's fault. Pretty sure it's the class's fault. God is clearly and rightly communicating. The issue is not a lack of knowledge. It's a bad heart on our part. Well, okay, but why does God even punish us then? Doesn't, pun doesn't our sin make God seem better? And if I sin more, then He's saving me from something bad, not just a jar that He can't open. I'm trying to make my sin seem way worse so He can be a way greater Savior. 
And Paul's like, don't, don't even get me started on that. And he does pick that up again in chapter 6. He's like, you're not going to run back into the burning building that the firefighter saved you out of so it could be twice as good of a salvation, right? No, that's stupid. Don't do that. You've been saved. Be saved. So all these questions in chapter 3 at the beginning there are kind of our way of like, okay, but this is your problem, God. You're to blame. You're the one. But God is perfectly righteous and free from sin. The problem of sin is a human problem, a problem we all suffer from. And to prove his point, Paul starts quoting the Scripture like he is in some quotation contest. And he just goes down the list. And what he does is he is trying to include everyone and everything. When he goes through those quotations, the no, not one, no one is righteous, we see the two different ways of understanding sin. One way we understand is that sin is things we do wrong or things we say wrong. And so we talk about Jesus forgives us of our sins, plural. They are things we do. That's one way to think of sin. That's right. But there's also sin, singular, as like a corruption, a disease, a pollution, so it's not just that we do these sins, but we are also infected by sin. We are in this condition of sin. And because we do both, because we have this cor corruption, we can't just stop this because that corruption naturally flows into all of the sins we do. And so we'll never be able to meet the righteous standard on our own. And that's true of every person. It's true of the person who is brazenly committing obvious sins over and over and denying God. But it is also true of the seemingly good person who struggles with self-righteousness and superiority and haughtiness. And so the bad news of sin is bad news because it's bad news for everybody. Every single human being. That we all stand condemned before a righteous God because of our sin and our sins. So we stand here and we look at this buffet of bad news. And I hope we can see that sin is a major problem. A major problem for all people. And over the next couple of months, we're going to look more closely at this problem of sin diving in here. But I can't today leave you with just bad news. And I can't leave you each week with just bad news because we are good news people. See, Paul shares all of this bad news specifically so he can then lift us up with good news. He wants us to see just how hopeless we are so we can see how much we need our Savior. And so after 64 verses of bad news, Romans 3, verse 21, interrupts that bad news story with a good news bulletin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now are two of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Because for 64 verses, it had just been, we're doomed. There's no hope. We got nothing. But now, God has done something. They are refreshing because they tell us how we can have this righteousness we're never going to get on our own. It says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All of us have sinned. 
Every single one of you. Me too. There are different categories of sin. Flavors, varieties, if you will, of sin. There is no distinction, though. All of us are sinners who have fallen short. None of us are righteous. Not even a one of us in this room. But we can all receive the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We can all be saved through the good news of Him who lived and died and rose again for us. And we will only see the greatness of our Savior when we see the greatness of our sin. And we will only see His grace as amazing when we realize just how hopeless we were. For it is seeing the bad news that helps us truly appreciate the goodness of the good news. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who gives us very clear and blunt diagnosis. It is accurate. And we don't always want to hear our diagnosis. We don't always want to hear what's wrong with us. But You don't tell us what's wrong with us to punish us and condemn us. No, You tell us what's wrong that we might seek from You the solution. So God, I pray that You would help us not only to see our sin today, but to see our Savior. To put our trust in Him. And to come to see that He saves us from all of our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.